Welcome to Double Take. I'm Les Sillers. Today we're going to air the first of a two-part series I hosted called The Freedom Show. It first aired last fall on the world and everything in it. People really seemed to enjoy it, so we decided to bring it back for this first season of Double Take. Before we get going, I'll just mention that we'd really appreciate it if you would take a few minutes to rate and review Double Take on your podcast app. It makes a huge difference in helping other people find our show. And now, here's part one of The Freedom Show. The new and deadly crackdown by Kim Jong-un. Was executed in public, reportedly. That Pyongyang is carrying out a purge. What says North Korea is still cheating sanctions and in... The most brutal, ruthless, and dangerous dictatorship in the world has a girl band. This is the Moranbong Band, about 20 members. You'd expect North Korean music groups to be mainly military bands performing odes to the Kim regime, soundtracks for military parades and propaganda films. These women do some of that, but they also play electric guitars and synthesizers, along with violins and cellos. They have perky hairstyles, sparkly dresses, and dance moves that are not too provocative. If a Baptist college put on a cabaret, it would look a lot like this YouTube video. It's a tune called Let's Steady. chorus goes, for those whose Korean is a little rusty, <clears throat> let's study. Let's study, let's study, for the benefit of our country. And it goes downhill from there. Kim Jong-un personally selected these women after taking power in 2011. The Kim regime has for decades sent officials throughout the countryside picking out the most beautiful girls. They serve on music and dance groups and so-called pleasure teams. This band is different. The group's leader since its founding, a woman named Hyun Song-wool, is rumored to be Kim Jong-un's longtime mistress. He reportedly gave two thumbs up at the band's 2012 debut. The set list included regime favorites, but also the theme from Rocky and an unlicensed medley of Disney show tunes. Mickey Mouse, Pooh, Tigger, and other characters showed up and danced around the stage. The Magic Kingdom is apparently quite popular in the Hermit Kingdom. So why does Kim Jong-un need a girl band? The usual explanation is that this is just propaganda under a veneer of K-pop. And it is. Clearly Kim Jong-un is trying to soften his image abroad. Maybe he just likes movie tunes. But there seems to be a bit more to it than that. In a real sense, Kim Jong-un started Moranbong Band because he was worried about radio shows like this one. For over a decade, a tiny outfit called Free North Korea Radio has been broadcasting into North Korea via shortwave. It's produced by North Korean defectors who now live in South Korea. This is a show from 2019. Kim Ji-young is one of the defectors. Here she's reviewing a South Korean sushi roll called a kimbap. She explained that recently she took a trip by train. She didn't need an official pass to travel in South Korea. You can go where you like. She had a few minutes before the train left. So she went into a convenience store and bought this kimbap for about a buck. It came in triangular packaging and was hard to unwrap. She actually spilled rice and hot sauce on her skirt. She was so embarrassed, she wasn't sure if she was eating rice or eating embarrassment. That's a saying in Korea. But then she said that she's a brave woman. She crossed mountains and a river to escape North Korea. So she looked up how to eat the kimbap on her smartphone and bought another. Spicy beef. It was pretty good. 
Free North Korea Radio has been producing shows like this and many other kinds of shows since about 2005. I'm Les Sillers. Today on this special edition of The World and Everything in It, we're going to take a closer look at Free North Korea Radio. It was founded by Christians, and it's been a key player in the battle for the hearts and minds of 25 million North Koreans. The stakes could hardly be higher. North Korea has nuclear missiles, Chinese backing, and an unstable despot as leader. For 70 years, the Kim regime has survived because it blocks out information from the outside world. Now, that information blockade is crumbling. So settle in for a story about power, information, love, freedom, the risk of global conflict, and the grace of God. There's a lot more story here. We'll start this story on July 8, 1994. This is from the BBC. Good afternoon. North Korea's President Kim Il-sung has died of a heart attack at the age of 82. Kim Il-sung was the last Stalinist, the last holdout in the grisly club of communist dictators put into power by Stalin at the end of the Second World War. It was the end of an era. Kim Il-sung had ruled North Korea since 1948. In 1950, he had invaded South Korea, starting the three-year Korean War. That pitted North Korea and China against South Korea and its UN allies, including the U.S. It ended in a stalemate, namely the demilitarized zone along the 38th parallel. At long last, the misery and the bloodshed of the war in Korea has been halted. Let's hope indeed that it's been ended. Kim Il-sung had built a cult of personality around himself and then his son and successor, Kim Jong-il. When Kim Il-sung died in 1994, it was the second of three major events that plunged North Korea into a devastating famine. The first was the collapse of the Soviet Empire beginning in 1989. North Korea depended on communist aid, and the aid dried up. Then Kim Il-sung died in 1994, and then, in the four years after Kim Il-sung's death, a series of floods and droughts shattered the country. Between one and three million people starved to death, North Koreans still refer to it as the arduous march. At the time, nobody in the West knew how bad it really was. Then a handful of starving refugees began leaking over the border. They told of people eating bark and grass, and much worse. But in 1996, I, I set out to try to host defectors from North Korea, because that was among, is, is the worst human rights tragedy in the world. This is Suzanne Schulte. She was the first to bring North Korean defectors to the U.S. so they could tell their stories. In the mid-1990s, she was living in the suburbs near Washington, D.C. She'd grown up in Richmond, Virginia, where her father had a mail-order business selling Masonic books and materials. But I never went into the business because I have some things about masonry that I'm not comfortable with. So. <laughs> but that's another story. But her mom's interest in politics was a huge influence. She w was always asking the question, what have you done for your country lately? Kind of like John F. Kennedy. Schulte grew up around conservative politics in the 1960s and 70s. Very anti-establishment, pro-markets, anti-communist. I was going door to door for Richard Nixon when I was 10 years old. So I had the door shut on my face when I was 10. So, and now I'm a deplorable. She was the youngest ever chief of staff for Texas Congressman Max Sweeney in the late 1980s. Then the first of her three sons arrived, so she quit. The day I went into labor was my last day as the chief of staff. Schulte joined the Defense Forum Foundation, which her husband Chadwick Gore had started. Its approach is peace through strength. Then she became president of the foundation. You know, I thought every single country that's a threat to peace without exception 
is abusing and terrorizing their own people. So I thought, well, Defense Foreign Foundation shouldn't just worry about our own national security. If we really care, we should be promoting freedom and democracy and standing up for those people that live under tyranny. So in the early 1990s, she was bringing in defectors from places like the Soviet Union, China, and Cuba. They would speak publicly and draw attention to human rights abuses. And then she heard about the North Korean defectors and their terrible stories of life under the Kim regime. It took a year, but in 1997, she finally convinced the South Korean government to let her bring a couple of North Korean defectors to the U.S., an army colonel and a high-ranking diplomat. Here's Colonel Choi Juhual at a Senate hearing describing North Korea's missile program. I believe all kinds of missiles that they are developing and producing will be used for delivery of such biochemical weapons and also weapons of mass destruction such as nuclear warheads. In other hearings, the colonel described, among other abuses, how the North Korean army confiscated vast amounts of the international aid for the elites to use. The colonel that we hosted back in 1997, he said that the aid trucks would go into a town and deliver the food and they would collect, you know, here's your bag of rice, this is for the Lee family, and they get the receipt, the Lee family received that. And then the aid workers would leave and then the army trucks would show up and take everything back. I mean, even to the point that if you had gone into a school and you handed a child a cookie, the child would hold the cookie and not consume it because they knew they were gonna come in there and they were gonna take it back. Scholte was shocked and the defectors begged her not to move on to the next tragedy. They were like, Suzanne, please, please focus on North Korea because people don't understand North Korea. They don't know about the political prisoner camps. They don't know about what's going on internally. Please don't just go on to the next country. So the next year, in 1998, she hosted five survivors of North Korean political prison camps. In 1999, she helped convince the Senate Judiciary Committee to hold the first congressional hearing on the camps. More followed, but it was hard at first. But nobody believed the stories. They were so incredulous about the horrible things that were happening in these camps. It was just beyond people's understanding. Lee Soon Oak, for example, described at a 2002 hearing spending five years at a forced labor camp in the early 1990s. She was there on trumped-up embezzlement charges. This is Lee describing some of her experience for reporters in 2015. According to her 2002 congressional testimony, Lee suffered starvation, severe beatings, and waterboarding. She was doused in water and forced to kneel on the ground in freezing weather. She saw maggot-infested wounds, people eating rats raw, guards murdering inmates for fun, and prisoners' babies strangled after botched abortions. What did you think the first time you heard the stories about the camp? Well, I think the, the arbitrary reason why someone would end up being sent to a camp, everybody there was innocent. They may have been sent there because they didn't properly bow before the statue of, of Kim, Kim Il-sung. Um, they, 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 they let too much dust accumulate on the pictures, in the, the mandatory pictures in their home of Kim Jong-il. I mean, just horrible reasons why these people are in the camps. The fact that whole families were incarcerated because the policy was that if one person stepped out of the line in a whole family, you locked up the entire family. And then to find out what happens in these camps, the starvation, the forced labor, the experiments on prisoners of chemical and biological weapons that was being done. Honestly, I couldn't sleep at night. It was just so horrible. And I, I actually cried out to God, is this really something that you want? for me to be involved in because I can't sleep at night. This is Double Take. 
We'll be right back. So when we we start thinking about moral courage, it's not just about the courage to be me. It's the courage to do the right thing. Jack Hay is president of Patrick Henry College in Purcellville, Virginia. It's a pretty chaotic culture right now in a lot of ways. And so one of the things that you often talk about is the need to develop moral courage in our students so that when they go into the world, uh, they're able to keep their equilibrium in turbulent times. So how does PHC do that? Yeah, you know, this idea of moral courage is such an important concept. First of all, you've got to determine what is moral. It's just not about learning the answers to 10 questions and checking a box. How, How does that get inside of me so it becomes my GPS for looking at everything? And then courage is the willingness to stand up and be counted when it's very possible that it's going to cost you something. You know, it doesn't take much to be courageous about something that, where there's no cost. Patrick Henry College. Go to phc.edu to find out more. This is a commercial for a North Korean car. It's called the Whistle, built at the Hiwangya, or Peace Automobile Factory, in the early 2000s. It looks like a base model Toyota Tercel. The commercial shows the car tooling around the countryside. The voice says, at one point, quote, Anyone who grabs the wheel and drives the car will be refreshed. This is because the factory, quote, received special guidance and deep attention from the dear leader Kim Jong-il. Until 20 years ago, the whistle was way beyond North Korea. The regime doesn't report its production numbers, but even today, according to news reports, a handful of North Korean factories put out maybe 50,000 cars, trucks, and buses per year. On the other hand, beginning in the 1980s, South Korea's auto industry was exploding. Hyundai dealer's been setting sales records all year, and now he's out to set new records. Kia, Hyundai, hundreds of thousands of cars per year. Seven Excel models under $7,000. Plus, of course, the rise of the South electronics industry, Samsung, LG. In the 1990s, the South Korean government pointed this out in propaganda leaflets it was dropping nightly all over North Korea. It was hardly a new strategy. Propaganda had been a major part of modern warfare since the First World War. As a weapon of psychological warfare, the leaflet is invaluable. This is from a 1950s TV show called The Big Picture, produced by the U.S. Army. It told how U.N. forces in the Korean War blanketed North Korea with propaganda leaflets and messages via loudspeakers. With all the leaflets aboard, the plane takes off. It is one of several planes being used in Korea for this purpose. So when a young North Korean officer picked up the leaflets about South Korean car production in the 1990s, he knew what they were. He just didn't believe them. At first. I thought to myself, it is impossible. The first voice you heard was Kim Song-min. I spoke to him last fall. Kim Song-min would go on to become the founder of Free North Korea Radio. The translator is Luke Kim. No relation. I'll just pause here to note that Kim is a very common Korean family name. There happen to be a lot of people named Kim in this story. I'll use their given and family names to help keep them straight. But just to clarify, the Kim regime includes Kim Il-sung, founder of North Korea, the great leader. 
Next is Kim Jong-il, his son and successor, the dear leader. His son and current North Korean dictator is Kim Jong-un. He has lots of titles. The woman who reviewed the roles is Kim Ji-young, and my translator, who you'll hear more from later, is Luke Kim. The co-founder of Free North Korea Radio is Kim Sung-min. We started this story with Suzanne Schulte in the mid-1990s. Now we're going back to the early 1990s with Kim Sung-min. He's looking at leaflets the South Korean government was dropping all over the North. He would come out of his tent in the morning and find the leaflets scattered all over the ground. Conventional wisdom held that propaganda leaflets were extremely effective. Chinese and Korean soldiers are especially impressed by realistic drawings and photographs. But these leaflets just annoyed him. At the time, he thought that the South couldn't possibly produce so many cars. I thought to myself, it is impossible. The regime taught that the South was a backward, poverty-stricken place, that the South groveled under the heel of capitalist American dogs, that the South hated the North passionately, wanted them all dead, and the Americans wanted to nuke North Korea's successful communist society into oblivion. Another leaflet showed Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il in worn-out clothes appealing to the international community for aid. I was very upset, thinking, how dare they do this to our spring leader? Kim Sung-min also saw leaflets claiming something he found quite disturbing. Kim Jong-il doesn't have the so-called Mount Baekdu pedigree. To explain this Mount Baekdu pedigree, we need a short historical detour. Kim Il-sung's original claim to power was that as a communist guerrilla in the 1940s, he drove out the Japanese army, which had occupied Korea since 1910. That's not exactly true. He was born Kim Sung-ju and raised in China. He was a communist guerrilla. When the Soviets took him under their wing and installed him as leader, he took the name of a famous Korean general, Kim Il-sung. The regime attributed to him godlike powers of wisdom and skill. That car commercial's mention of Kim Jong-il giving special guidance at the factory? That's a thing. The Kims would drop by some farm or factory and glance around. Then they'd provide supposedly supernatural, quote, on-the-spot guidance that the workers were supposed to implement. The civic religion slash political ideology that propagates these ideas is called Juche. Juche still dominates North Korean society in a way that's hard for Westerners to grasp. Juche is usually translated as self-reliance. North Koreans don't think of it as a religion. Religion is forbidden. But, at the risk of oversimplification, you could call it a mashup of Marxism, Maoism, Confucianism, and Korean leader worship, all laced with ultranationalism. So, back to Mount Pektu. Unsurprisingly, the Moranbong Band has a song title that could be translated, Back to Mount Pektu. Anyway, Mount Pektu is a majestic, snow-covered volcano in the country's northern region. It's supposedly the sacred birthplace of the Korean people, and it's deeply symbolic to North Koreans. The regime produced a film in 2019 showing current leader Kim Jong-un on a snow-covered slope of Mount Pektu. He's bravely peering into the darkness and blowing snow. Now he's galloping past the camera on a white horse, every close-cropped hair firmly in place. Juche teaches that Kim Jong-il, the deer leader, was born in a log cabin under a double rainbow at Mount Pektu. But the leaflet Kim Song-min was looking at said, accurately, that Kim Jong-il was born in a military camp in eastern Russia. 
His father, Kim Il-sung, had retreated there with his wife during the fight against the Japanese. When I first saw the leaflets, the first thought that came to my mind was that it is from the enemies. Second thought was, can this be real? Third thought was that it could be real. Kim Song-min had never before seriously questioned the regime. He was born in 1962 and grew up in Pyongyang in a privileged household. His mother was a well-known journalist. His father, a famous North Korean lyric poet. Kim Song-min wanted to be a writer, but he spent the mandatory 10 years after high school in the army. He was posted to an artillery unit, the 620th camp. Then he went to college, hoping to carry on his father's literary work. Instead, after college, he returned to the 620th camp as a propaganda writer, rank of captain. And in late 1996, things came to a head. There were the flyers. He also was hearing radio broadcasts from outside. He believed his parents were already dead. Also, he heard from a friend that he was about to be arrested. He had written letters to an uncle in South Korea, smuggled out through China. And the North Korean security forces found out about the letters. Also, the main reason for my defection was that there was an incident within my unit. Some civilians had stolen some made-in-Japan trombones and saxophones, among other instruments, from a nearby school. They were caught. After the regime found out about that within my unit, I was accused of being a snitch. He hadn't snitched, but it was time to go. So he defected. He slipped over the northern border into China by wading through the Tumen River. He held a bag of books over his head and hoped not to get shot. He found his way to the Chinese seaport of Dalian, northwest of Korea, but Chinese authorities soon picked him up. Then, as now, Chinese security forces repatriate anyone they catch from North Korea. He described what happened next for the George W. Bush Institute. I was heavily interrogated for 40 days in Dalian. Then they sent me to a border town called Taiwan, where I was held for eight more days as well as being interrogated. He tried not to admit he was a soldier, but the North Korean guards beat him to a bloody pulp. They broke both his little fingers. There are no words that can describe the pain. So in the end, I told them my real name and that I was the writer for the Camp 620. Then they sent me back. Well, they tried. They put him on a train to Pyongyang, handcuffed with a couple of guards. He was headed to his own execution, and he knew it. The train often broke down, so it took three days until they were approaching Pyongyang. By then, he had a plan. Kim Song-min asked to use the bathroom. <laughs> Normally, if you do that, a guard will hold on to your belt while you're taking care of your business. Nobody had cleaned the bathrooms for three days. They were filthy. The guard declined to go inside. So this guard was just standing outside, watching me. Also, his arms were so swollen from the beatings that his guards couldn't tighten his handcuffs. When the guard was distracted, he slipped out of one cuff and kicked out the bathroom's wooden window frame. The train was going maybe 55 miles an hour. Fields rolled by. I was going to die either way, jumping off from the running train or being executed for treason. He jumped. 
and he survived. Fortunately, farmers had cultivated the spot where I landed to grow sesame seeds, nice and soft. It was April 30th, 1997. It took him three days to get the cuffs off his other hand, nine days to walk back to the border area, 50 more days to sneak back into China. He later told the South China Morning Post that when he finally got back into China, quote, I found 28 ticks beneath my skin. I hadn't even noticed. It was then that I broke down crying. He worked as a laborer for a few years in a brick factory in Yanji. He also met some missionaries and became a Christian. But it was a difficult life in the shadows, dodging both Chinese and North Korean security forces. Finally, the same uncle he'd written to before came to China and arranged for counterfeit papers. That got him through Chinese security and onto an airplane. He arrived in Seoul in February, 1999. Time for a short break. Double take. We'll be right back. Because every child is unique, HSLDA is all about enabling homeschooling parents to give their children the very best educational experience possible. As the nation's largest homeschooling advocacy organization, HSLDA assists over 100,000 member families with the ins and outs of homeschooling law, curriculum choices, programs, and much, much more. From personalized legal advice and consultation services to financial hardship grants and practical resources, HSLDA works tirelessly to give families peace of mind, help their students thrive, and make homeschooling possible for every member. HSLDA.org Did you enjoy having me comment on your stories and say you could do this better? Well, now, no. (laughs) Um, Was that a rhetorical question? (laughs) No. (laughs) Besides hosting Doubletake, I also teach journalism at Patrick Henry College in Purcellville, Virginia. This is one of my students, Beth Whitehead. I asked her to talk a little bit about her experience at PHC. And so tell me what you've learned about writing uh, in the past three years that you've been in the program. (laughs) Well, I came in and I realized very quickly when I entered your class, which I started in J2, um, that I have a very uh, flowery style of writing. And he quickly commented that you can say this one idea in one sentence instead of six. The more words you add sometimes does not actually make the meaning more clear or more beautiful. Sometimes the most poignant things can be said in the fewest words possible. I want to tell real stories about real people um, and ways that are beautiful. And I think I want to tell stories in a way that doesn't just take the place to you, but that takes you to the place. I want to immerse you in the situation because people's stories are worth telling. We're all made in the Imago Dei, and there is something about humanity that just begs to be noticed. Patrick Henry College. Go to phc.edu backslash journalism to find out more. Once the north wind and the sun were arguing about who was the stronger. This is the National Film Board of Canada's retelling of one of Aesop's most famous fables. The north wind and the sun had a contest to see who could get a man to remove his coat. Try as he might, the north wind could not blow the coat off. But the sun shone warmly on the man, who soon shed his coat. The moral... Persuasion is better than force.
Starting in late 1998, South Korea took a new approach to relations with North Korea. Here's President Kim Dae-young at a press conference in 1999. In this associated press clip, he's saying, we must work with North Korea so that it will not start another war and guide it so that it will cooperate with us. This approach, engagement with more carrot than stick, became known as the sunshine policy. And part of that policy was to give up the propaganda war. No more leaflets or broadcasts for either side. Fast forward a few years to 2004. Kim Song-min and Suzanne Schulte were in Seoul at a gathering of North Korean defectors and information activists. Song-min, because he had a real passion, uh, he wanted to be a poet. I mean, he didn't want to get involved in human rights work. I mean, he would love to be off writing poetry. But he cared so much about the people of North Korea. They had met a few years before. Proponents of the sunshine policy saw it as a pragmatic compromise, or maybe a sort of folk wisdom. But Schulte and Kim Song-min saw it as betrayal. The South Korean government was abandoning the North Korean people to the lies of a despotic regime. Worse, it was complicit in the lies. The reason why we started this broadcasting was because the South Korean government colluded with the Kim Jong-il regime so that they would start mutual propaganda. At the time, Schulte wasn't exactly popular with the government in Seoul. She had been banging on and on about North Korea's human rights abuses, making speeches, holding events, writing op-eds published in Seoul and Washington. That upset the Kim regime in North Korea, and that undermined the South Korean sunshine policy. Schulte jokes that... When I went to South Korea the first time in 1999, they treated me like a diplomat. They actually sent a car to pick me up at the airport. I got whisked through, you know, security. But over the years, she kept at it about North Korea's human rights abuses. When I went back there during the sunshine years, they sent a car to follow me, <laughs> not to pick me up. By 2004, they were determined to do something. Kim Song-min was a great writer, a propagandist. He knew how the other side worked, and he knew many people still inside the regime. Schulte had lots of contacts in Washington, and she was quickly becoming one of the most prominent North Korea activists in the world. So, Schulte and Kim Song-min decided to start a radio station. Free North Korea Radio. Kim Song-min's voice, a couple of staffers, 30 minutes. The first internet broadcast was on April 22, 2004. Kim Song-min ran the show. Schulte became honorary chairman. They knew only the elite would have access to the internet to be able to hear those first programs, but they kept going. And the next year, in 2005, they made the transition to shortwave. The first broadcast was from a transmitter in a country Schulte declines to name. The startup period was tough. Pro-North Korea groups used to protest outside their Seoul offices. They had to move six times in the first few years. Because of death threats from the North, the South Korean government provided bodyguards for Kim Song-min. But they kept going, and he and Schulte have been working together to put out Free North Korea radio ever since. Free North Korea Radio is one of a half-dozen radio organizations that broadcast via shortwave into North Korea. The largest include Voice of America and Radio Free Asia. Other groups send information into North Korea on USB drives and memory chips. They tie them to balloons and float them onto North Korean shores in plastic bottles. This is a video from Voice of the Martyrs Korea at a balloon launch in 2014. As it goes out... 
the air pressure decreases until the hydrogen becomes uh, to have enough capacity to... Schulte says that surveys and testimony from defectors suggest that free North Korea radio programs are among the most popular and most effective. North Koreans might dismiss Voice of America, for example, as capitalist propaganda, but Free North Korea Radio's people have North Korean accents. And Free North Korea Radio has a record of delivering scoops that others discount until they're confirmed. For example, in 2013, it first reported that Kim Jong-un purged his own uncle. A few days after Free North Korea Radio broadcast the story, Ararang News reported this. North Korea has confirmed the ousting of Chang Song-tek, the uncle of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, who was once considered the second most powerful person within the regime. It was part of the biggest purge in decades. Guards dragged him out of a Communist Party meeting and perp-walked him for the cameras. Its state-run Korean Central Television released pictures this afternoon of Kim Jong-un's uncle, Chang Song-tek, being arrested. Now, uh, these are the pictures Later, that they executed about. him. That story, as Kim Song-min put it modestly, it received a lot of attention. In 2014, Kim Jong-un had bowed out of an appearance at a party convention. There were numerous speculations regarding Kim Jong-un's health condition. After Free North Korea Radio reported that he'd had ankle surgery, he showed up at the convention, on crutches. More recently, in 2019, Free North Korea Radio obtained about 9,000 pages of documents containing personal data on the population of Pyongyang. Names, addresses, identification numbers. I think it is safe to say that we are better at getting information out of North Korea and South Korea National Intelligence Service. As a result, Free North Korea Radio has had an outsized influence despite minuscule resources. Kim Song-min's wide network of sources inside North Korea, some very highly placed, smuggle out important news in a variety of ways. They use South Korean apps on cell phones, memory chips hidden in nasal passages, phone calls. They report on everything from purges to floods to human rights abuses to the price of bread in Pyongyang. It's news that the Kim regime would never tell its own people, but they can hear it on FNKR. I always pronounce it wrong. Is it Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-un? Kim Jong. The dictator? Yeah. This is Luke Kim. Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un. He's a student at Patrick Henry College. Like, just Kim Jong-un. My name, Kim Young-ho, is, people say Young-ho, but it's really Kim Young-ho. Uh, Short and subtle. He was born in South Korea, moved to the U.S. at age 13. Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un. There you go. Perfect. Luke translated the piece about Korean roles from earlier in the show. So I asked him to sit down with me and translate some of FNKR's other shows. This is a review of a popular brand of spicy noodles. The show was called, roughly, Cool Taste, Cool World. Kim Ji-young, the reviewer, told how she went to her uncle's place for the weekend. There was plenty of food, but they went to the market and bought even more food. They came home and cooked the noodles, then added cheese and fried eggs on top. It was delicious. And she literally said, this is South Korea, plenty of food to go around. I think this will be very shocking and unbelievable. In another show, two escapees recalled being in a political prison camp together. Oh, well, this one is about their experience in the concentration camp. Oh, really? Yeah. They decide to sneak past the guards and the fences into the forest to find some ripe melons. They're fearful because they've uh, seen people 
getting beat to death, and the punishment is unpredictable. They wait until the guards go to the bathroom. They slip out and find the melons. They had to eat everything. Including the melon rinds. Cover what they did. Because if they got caught, they could die. One guy was saying, you know, I'll be okay getting beaten to death uh, if I can eat another melon tomorrow. Let's, let's just finish it off. The last part, um, this guy says, the most difficult thing in concentration camp was seeing countless lives starving to death, uh, beat, beaten to death. And he was saying, you know, I, you know, pray for those souls. The show also broadcasts interviews with Western officials. Hello, North Korea. This is Suzanne Schulte, Honorary Chair of Free North Korea Radio. And I am very pleased to host our newest program, Free North Korea Radio Brings You the World. This was an interview with Lord David Alton, a British peer and human rights activist. For broadcast, it was, of course, translated into Korean. Do the people of the United Kingdom live under a one-family rule? You mentioned some of these things about Parliament. But who's in charge of the people of the United Kingdom? Well, we have a head of state. It's the Majesty of the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II. He explained that the Queen is the ceremonial head of state, but Britain is ruled by a parliament of elected legislators. The courts ensure that everybody, even the Queen, is accountable to the rule of law. Then Lord Alton's story got personal. He described meeting North Korean refugees and some of his human rights work. So I, uh, I loathe the ideology of North Korea. I loathe its... Uh, system that has created gulags that executes and tortures its own citizens. But how can you do other than love the people of North Korea and indeed of South Korea? They're some of the most wonderful people I've ever met. What would you like to tell the people of North Korea? I would like to say to people in North Korea, keep hope. And I think that the people of North Korea should never despair. They, there will be change one day. That's my, my prayer for the people of North Korea, that we will, we like the walls of Jericho, that we'll see the walls fall and we'll see real freedom for the people of the North. Sometimes, Free North Korea Radio plays the regime's propaganda songs with the words rewritten. Here's the regime's version. Again, translator Luke Kim. So he says, when someone asks, what is life, we'll answer when I look back at the last minute. That's the refrain. If someone asks, what is life? At the end of life, you look back and life seems so short, but it's... Unforgettable even as time passes. It's a moment dedicated to the motherland. And here's the revised version, written by Christians. If someone asks us, we'll answer... We will walk the path of honoring Christ who gave us love and grace. Free North Korea Radio has also broadcast recordings of underground church services. This man um, was crying out to God for his people. Why should they? suffer like this, um, there's no freedom. Why um, our family members, our brothers and sisters, why do they need to go to prison 
and die without anyone knowing. So he just crying out to God He's um, pleading to God um, for rescue. Well, the, the man is in, in great despair. He says uh, he has wounds, bruises over his body. Living, staying alive is more painful than death at this time. Well, he made some grave remarks uh, against the government, which is really, really dangerous. Uh, he talked about the, the public execution, and he's again saying, "What other countries, like in this in the world, is like this, where, where you watch something uh, that the government doesn't want you to, you get publicly executed." So he's uh, asking God to uh, repl uh, just get rid of the dictator. When I first heard about Free North Korea Radio, I thought, what a great story. It's got these interesting people. We'll get great audio of these North Korea broadcasts. And the stakes are huge, I mean, life and death. This story has everything, I thought. Then I heard Luke's translation of those two North Korean believers, and I realized, I've got a story, they've got a dictator. Every single day we hear in the news about people who are suffering. Every single day. War, famine, persecution, disease. To keep from being overwhelmed, we have to remind ourselves that the suffering is pretty far away. Other countries, other cultures, other people's families. How does it, how does it make you feel when you listen to that? And there's people in your own home culture mm. it's really sad and just the, the voice is just so hopeless um, just um, that it's just a, again a reminder that there are people breathing and living in North Korea um, and the whole world is the world is a lot more focused on the dictator and the nuclear weapons but I think the human rights um, news, uh, issues need to be taken seriously. We can't care about everybody in the world the same way that we care for those closest to us but we're not helpless and Western countries can have a big role in freeing the North Korean people. We'll explore how that might happen on the next special edition of The World and Everything in It. Last night, the government of North Korea proclaimed to the world that it had conducted a nuclear test. A miscalculation by any of the parties really could lead to a global conflict. Women of North Korea created a capitalist system. Their weapon has to be truth, uh, sincerely and, uh, and seriously affirmed. Do you remember writing in your diary? Freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four. This, I think, is what the Kim rulers fear the most. This podcast comes from the creative team that brings you the world and everything in it. I'm Les Sillers. Source material includes audio from ABC News, Ararang News, The Associated Press, 
the BBC, CNN, Movie Tone Newsreels, Free North Korea Radio, and Voice of the Martyrs. We hope you enjoyed this program and that you'll tell others about it. And tell us what you think. You can write feedback at worldandeverything.com or call our listener line and record a message at 202-709-9595. Thanks, and see you next time. Next week on Double Take, the conclusion of The Freedom Show. And don't forget to follow Double Take or subscribe in your podcast app. We're already working hard on our second season, and we got some terrific stories. So be sure to follow or subscribe so you'll have season two as soon as it comes out next year. I'd like to add one more thing. We're always interested in good stories. So if you have an idea for a story that would work for Double Take next season, send me a note. Write to doubletake at wng.org and tell us who you are and why yours is a good idea. I can't guarantee I'll get back to everybody who writes, but I will read every idea that comes in. Thanks. I look forward to hearing from you.